What difference does it make when you have the right tool for the job? Probably many of you have different hobbies or interests or tasks that you are seeking to accomplish. What difference does it make when you have the, the necessary tools to do that job well? Yesterday, uh, I, one of the things I enjoy is beekeeping. I've had bees for a few years now. And yesterday was the day I was harvesting the fall honey. And I had, in two different ways, I had one tool that was right for the job and one where I was missing the right tool. The right tool I had for the job was the, an extractor. And Ron Paul graciously lent me his. And this thing is a feat of engineering. It uses centrifugal force to push out all the honey from the frames. If you were to try to do that by hand, what you would normally have to do is crush all the wax and strain all the honey. And it's messy. And I particularly hate having sticky hands. But this process, you just put them all in, you turn a dial, and it works. And when you have a tool that is appropriate for the job, that works the way it is intended. Not only does it give you the results you're looking for, there's joy in the process. On the other hand, I needed a place to put all of this honey, and so I had a food-grade bucket, and I wanted to put this spout on it so that I could have the honey out. And normally what you're supposed to use is a hole saw, so it's a drill that's basically a saw blade that you go through and it cuts this hole out. I had the right size, I was missing the attachment. And I'm trying to think, okay, maybe if I like just go back and forth, can I be consistent with that? I'm like, that's not gonna work. So instead I got a knife and I went on the bucket. I didn't cut myself. Some of you were like already thinking that's where this story was going. But I spent time just trying to do it and, and it was an exercise that was frustrating because I couldn't make a clean cut. And I, I got it pretty good. I, I traced it out. I put the piece in. I, I try to seal it. And then I do the water test. And it didn't work. And I was so frustrated because I had spent a long time sterilizing this bucket, cleaning it. And yet when it came to time, I didn't have the right tool. And that was frustrating. Last week, we began our series in the book of Acts, and within Acts, we find that there is a work to be done, a mission to be fulfilled, a job to accomplish. This morning, what we're going to see is that this mission, the mission in our passage, we're going to see that Christ is meant to be proclaimed to the end of the earth. He has commissioned witnesses for a specific purpose. But what we're going to see in Acts, but not just in Acts, also in our own lives, is that this mission is difficult. There are great problems and challenges that we are facing. And so the question that we have is, is there a right tool for the job? Is there something provided that is meant to accomplish the mission that Christ describes? That's what we're going to be looking this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses today. And I want to begin by looking at those first three verses, which are Luke's prologue. Let's read it together. This is what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until... Uh, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. By way of general observation, Luke begins this book in a similar way to how he began the gospel of Luke. There's a prologue, a preface. There's an introduction that he writes to the person receiving it. We see here that he says, in the first book, O Theophilus. Well, what is the first book that the author is referring to? He's referring to the gospel of Luke. If you go back to the gospel of Luke, the first four verses, you're going to find a very similar pattern to what we see here. It's describing why he's writing this book. We see that the recipient of this book is Theophilus. Now, we don't know much about Theophilus. His name means, some of you might already know, that his main name means friend of God. Now, there's some theories that some people think that what Luke is, is writing to is not actually a specific person. He's writing to a category of people, the friends of God. He's writing to believers, those who would consider themselves friends of God. Most scholars don't see it that way. Most scholars think that this is actually a literal person, uh, likely a, a Roman patron who was helping support Luke through this. But the fact is, we just don't know. The other fact is that it does fit for us to see this as a book written for the friends of God. Luke, Acts, is written to believers. This is written to tell us our history. But not just to give us information about what's happened, it's also meant to motivate us to give us the mission we are meant to accomplish. It's meant to transform us. This is what we talked about last week when we said that the transformational intent of the book is that we take heart, that we be encouraged because of what happens in this book, and that as we are encouraged, we therefore also take action. That we do what we are meant to do. But there's an element when we come to introductions, I don't know about you, that I have this desire that often is to just skip past introductions. Just to like, okay, you know what? This is just names. I don't really know much about them. Let's just get to the main part. And we can't do that with Acts. Acts is going to give us significant, important information in these first three verses. He is going to lay for us a theological foundation, a principle from which the rest of the book pours out. What is that theological foundation that he wants us to see already from the beginning of the book? He is wanting to reveal God's greater work. God is doing more than we might initially assume. I think it might help us if we go can see that in this text. And so I'm going to ask you guys to do an exercise with me. Kids, this includes you as well. 
I want you to either, you can do it on your handout, uh, you can do it in your Bible, you can do it in the book. I want you to just underline each reference to Christ in this first section. Kids, if you have your handout, you can look at it and I have the passage and you'll see the different words are changed every time that it refers to Christ. Look at what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. How many times do you see Christ referred to in just three verses? He's all over the place. Why? Because Luke knows, and Luke is establishing a foundation that this is a work of God. Just look at some of the different actions Luke lists in just these first three verses. He says, Jesus began to do and teach, but he continues and lists more, much more. Jesus ascended. Jesus commanded and chose his apostles. Jesus presented himself alive by many proofs. Jesus suffered. Jesus appeared during 40 days following his resurrection. Luke is pointing us, he's reminding us, he's revealing that this is a work of Christ. Don't forget Theophilus. Don't forget, friend of God, this is because of what Christ did. This is his work. But here's what's incredible and what I want us to see, that Luke is not just, isn't just encouraging Theophilus to look back to what Christ has done. He's encouraging him to both look forward and to look up. How so? In what way is Theophilus meant to look forward? Notice the very specific word that Luke says right at the beginning of the list of everything Jesus was doing. Right back in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do. What's the implication of the way Luke is writing? It's not finished. It's still going on. It's an ongoing work. Now the question that we might have, the, the apostles, the readers might have is saying, wait a second, I know how you ended your first gospel. I know how it ended. Jesus left. I know what we're going to see later in this passage. Again, Jesus left. What do you mean all that he began to do? What we're going to see is that Christ is still continuing to work. Even though he is not bodily present in the same way that he was in the Gospels, this is still Christ's work. Luke is revealing the greater work. 
This is where there's a a, a misnomer with the popular title of Acts. Often Acts is referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. Now, are the apostles active in this book? Absolutely. But if we were to read this book without the theological foundation that it is Christ who is working, are we going to understand the transformational intent? No. If we think that this is through their strength, through what they've done, we've missed the point. This is what Christ is doing. We don't just see what he has done. We see all that was, we, we see that all of that was just the beginning of what he is still doing. But I mentioned Luke isn't just calling Theophilus to look back or to look forward to what Christ is doing. He also wants his readers to look up. How so? Here's the second exercise I want to ask you to do, and this is going to be an ongoing exercise. I want you, as we are going through this passage, identify the different members of the Trinity. Look in this text and see how each member of the Trinity is revealed to be working. Every single paragraph mentions all three. It talks about the, the kingdom of that Jesus is the ruler, that he is the ascended king. It talks about the kingdom of God, the Father's plan, the Father's promise. It talks about the Holy Spirit. This is why the big idea for the book of Acts that we saw last week has a Trinitarian focus. This was our big idea for the book of Acts that we saw last week. No obstacle overcomes the Father's plan in establishing Christ's kingdom for the Spirit empowers Christians to proclaim Christ. The Father's plan, Christ's kingdom, and the Spirit's power. All three of these elements are woven throughout the pages of Acts, and we see it all starting right here. This is why the pro, Luke's prologue is important for us to understand, because it's establishing a theological precedent, a theological foundation. Everything we see here is because of what we can see looking back to what our Trinitarian God has already done, looking up to what he is doing, and looking forward to what he will continue to do. Luke is revealing God's greater work. What are the implications of that truth? How is that a foundation, the foundation we need to begin this book from? Well, remember, again, our our transformational uh, intent is to take heart and take actions. These first three verses might be the greatest reason we have to take heart. Now, you might be thinking, I I don't know. I I think I'd find it more encouraging to think about, you know, that God can can cause people to to break out of prison with no one seeing it. I I think it's more encouraging that that he can sustain them through shipwrecks. I think it's more, uh, it can cause me to take more heart to see some of the other bigger things he's going to do throughout the rest of the book. And make no mistake, those are encouraging and they cause us to take heart. But all of them are encouraging because of this foundation that Christ has worked is working, and will continue to work. If we did not have that foundation, this book would not be the comfort that it is. And so we are therefore called to take heart. But when we take heart, it is meant to 
push us forward to take action. And that's what we're going to see next. Let's continue in our passage and see how Christ commissions the apostles. The first part of Christ's commission is the command to wait for the promise. Let's look at verses 4 through 5. Verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I wonder if Christ's command here seemed odd to the disciples. So often we're just looking at what's said and we forget to think, well, I wonder what this was like the first time they heard these words. Think about what they've seen and heard. What kind of ministry have they witnessed from Christ? How, how, do, how often do you think this scenario happened? The disciples are geared and ready to go with Jesus on their next journey, and Jesus comes to them and says, ah, Guys, I'm really tired. You know what? I'm, I'm just not up to this, to this mission right now. Let's go next week. I, I heard there's this really great resort near Jerusalem. It's got some, some nice baths. We, well, let's just go relax there. Let's, let's just take a breather. We, we've been going nonstop. This, this mission is not as urgent as we might assume. Or, or, or how often do you think they heard the words of Jesus and, and Jesus, they see Jesus stand up in the temple, they see him stand up in the, temp, in the synagogue and Jesus says, hey guys, I'm Jesus. I'm sort of starting this kingdom thing because like, I guess I'm the Messiah and I don't, I don't know if anyone wants to join my kingdom, let me know at some point uh, or don't, whatever, you do you. Is that the tone and urgency that the disciples have witnessed? No. The disciples have seen Christ literally give everything for the sake of this mission. They have seen the truth of Luke 19 that the Son of Man came to seek and to save sinners. They've seen that it's urgent. But they haven't just seen Christ demonstrate the urgency of the mission. They've also seen him explicitly tell them. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers, and this is what he said to them. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, why am I bringing up some of these different ways that they've seen, in it, the, these, the, these actions that they've seen in Christ, the tone of his ministry, the words that he has instructed them? Why am I bringing that up? To demonstrate what looks like a contradiction, a disparity in what he's telling them now. For the last while, Jesus has been preparing them for his departure. It says for the last 40 days, he's been telling them about his kingdom. They're ready. We got to get to work. This is urgent. You're the one that said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Wait for the promise. 
it seems like those two concepts don't go together when this mission is so urgent. So why is Christ telling them to wait? Because no matter how hard they work, no matter how urgent they believe the task is, without the promise of the Father, their work will be done in vain. It will be futile. The reason Jesus tells them to wait is not because he forgot the urgency of the mission. It's not because he no longer cares about seeking and saving the lost. It's because he knows that without this promise, they can do nothing in accomplishing the mission. So what are they waiting for? They are waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They are waiting for what Christ promised them would come. Now, you might be think, here thinking, okay, that's interesting for the apostles, but this doesn't apply to us now because this isn't a promise we are still waiting for. And I want to recognize that it's true, we do not wait in the same way. But I wonder, are we willing to obey God when the command seems counterintuitive? Do we struggle when Christ calls us to do things according to his plan and not ours? When he calls us to trust uh, his word and not our understanding. My ways are higher than your ways. How often do we struggle with that concept? What if the apostles had ignored Jesus? What if they said, Jesus, there's no time to wait. We have family we have brothers and sisters who don't know you. We need to do this. I, I know that you think that this is a better way, but there's no time. We've got to get moving. Now, obviously, from our perspective, we would look at the apostles and say, you're crazy. Do what Jesus said. It's very easy for us to see that when we're looking at someone else's life. It's a lot harder for us to see that when we're looking at our own. God, I know you told me to wait, but I can't miss this opportunity. I don't want it to become too late. God, I know you told me there's a different way, but I think this is better. I think in the end, you'll see that good will come out of this. God, I know you said that you are in control and I should rest in you, but if I don't do something to fix this, who will? So often we deceive ourselves by thinking it's okay to ignore what God has told us to do in order to gain what we think God might want us to have. Will we obey God even when on paper it seems like his way is not the best way? See, this, this ultimately comes down to a matter of trust. The disciples will obey or disobey Christ depending on whether or not they trust that his way is better. Is it better to wait for the promise? Even the element of where they're waiting is concerning. In Jerusalem, they know the way the crowds have responded to Christ. They know what has just happened. They know the lies that we see in the Gospels that the priests are spreading. Tell people that it was the disciples who stole the body away. Do you think it's easy for them to wait here at this time? It's not. But they trust God. 
That question is a question that we will always have to answer every single day of our lives. Will we obey God even when to our eyes it seems like there's a better way that's not his way? Christ orders them to wait for the promise because they need what only he can provide in order to accomplish what he is commissioning them to do. Let's continue and see as Christ commissions them to be witnesses through his power. Verse 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This section begins with a question from the disciples. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is one of those topics in which there are entire books, theological systems, debates, all built around the topic and concept of the kingdom of God. And, and there are many nuances and elements that, that d- require much attention and discussion. But, but the unintended and unfortunate result of that is that often we just avoid the issue. We don't want to talk about it because we don't want to step on any toes. And we make it way more complicated than it needs to be. Why are the disciples asking this question? In one sense, it's because the disciples have rightly recognized that Christ is the messianic king who has established his kingdom. Now, like I said, there is a lot of theological nuances when we are discussing the kingdom, but when we complicate it too much, we miss the beauty and the simplicity of what he's saying. In its simplest form, the kingdom of God is God's reign and rule. It's the dominion of the king of kings. As he rules over the subjects he has saved, it is where the citizens follow him, where evil is conquered and ultimately banished. Christ is the king of that kingdom. Some of you remember when we were in Colossians where Paul said, he, and that's being, that's God the Father, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of whom? His beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The beginning of Luke starts with the proclamation of this king. We find it in the words of the angel who comes to Mary and reveals who will be conceived in her womb. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now that concept of who Christ is took a while for the disciples to see. 
there was a long period of time in which they weren't sure who Jesus is. But two weeks ago, Pastor Billy preached in Luke 9. And in Luke 9, we finally see one of the apostles get it. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter acknowledges, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah of God. You are the one that was promised and foretold. You are the messianic king. But even though he sees it at that point, there's still a difficulty for him because what Jesus says next, I am the king, but I am the king who came to die. I am the king who has come to establish my kingdom in a way you could have never foreseen. You thought I was the king who was going to come with the sword to conquer Rome. You thought that I would establish my kingdom through might, and I will, but not the might you are expecting. Christ died to establish his kingdom, to establish his rule and reign. And now make no mistake, it's not as if he wasn't already the king before that. But this is the way in which he came so that we could enter his kingdom. The apostles at this point got this to a degree. And now they're at this point where, where that element that they didn't understand, that whole problem of the king dying, they're on the other side of that. The king is risen. You conquered death, Jesus. I think we get it now. I think we understand how you can have an everlasting kingdom because you literally conquered death. So Jesus is now the time. Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it now that we see the fulfillment of your promises? Their question seems reasonable, but Christ's answer seems strange. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus is revealing that they don't comprehend the reality of Christ's rule. They don't fully understand the kingdom. The first part of Christ's answer is to tell them, that's not your place. That's not information you need to concern yourself about. He reminds them that this is all according to the Father's plan, His timeline. This is a conversation I have a lot with my kids. This is not a conversation you're a part of. Daddy's talking to mommy. We're making this decision. You don't get to make a decision here. This is not your role. Jesus is revealing that to the apostles. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about the if and when of God's promises. He is going to do it. But then he continues to then show them, but there is a role for you. There is a purpose for you. And we find it in verse 8. It starts, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
Christ is revealing what their role is meant to be. He tells them that they will be witnesses. That begs the question, witnesses of what? My witnesses. They are witnesses of Christ, witnesses of his life, witnesses of his death, witnesses of his resurrection, witnesses of his ascension, witnesses that Christ is the king. See, the role of the apostles is not to establish the kingdom. Rather, they are to bear witness to the kingdom Christ has already established. They do that as they proclaim Christ as the resurrected, ascended king. They don't go and establish their kingdom. They call people and invite them to enter the kingdom that's already established. Now, please understand, one of the difficulties we have when we're talking about the kingdom is this already but not yet principle. There is already the sense of the kingdom in that there is already a king. But we have not seen its final form. And in fact, we, the end of our passage is going to point us to that when it talks about Christ's return. The kingdom is already established. We're still looking forward to that eternal kingdom. That kingdom when once and for all, all of the promises of God are fulfilled. But right now, Jesus is going to expand the disciples' understanding of the kingdom. He's going to expand the narrow focus that they have. Notice their question revealed that narrow understanding of Christ's kingdom. Jesus, are you going to reveal, are you going to restore it to Israel? This is what we're looking at. This is our view of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, your view of the kingdom is too small. I have established a far greater kingdom. The the, the reign, the boundaries of my kingdom go far beyond Israel. Where are they going to witness? Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. Christ's kingdom is demonstrating that they are meant to proclaim his kingdom to the end of the earth. They are meant to herald the king among the nations. They are meant to bear witness to the king's dominion. Jesus is expanding their understanding, but that expansion goes on in a way that we're going to track throughout the entire book because the next question is, okay, we understand where we are meant to bear witness. Who are we meant to bear witness to? According to their question, who are the apostles going to assume they are meant to proclaim the kingdom to? The Jews, to Israel. And that's where they start. For the first several chapters of Acts, that is where their efforts are. And that's not wrong. Christ is the king of Israel. He is the king of those who recognize his rule and reign. But where this book is going to continue, where that, their view is going to be expanded, is it's not just for the Jews. They're going to struggle with that. That's not just a one and done. Jesus said, hey, take it to the Gentiles. No, there's going to be multiple t- parts, multiple sections in which we're going to see Peter has to see a vision three times. 
where Peter is then going to struggle with the implications. And it's going to keep on going until we reach the end of the book, which is going to tell us in, 28, uh, in chapter 28, verse 28, that the kingdom, that this is now proclaimed to the Gentiles. The beauty of what we have in Christ's kingdom, the one that he established, the one that the disciples view needs to be expanded, is that Christ calls and welcomes any who would enter his kingdom, provided they recognize him as king. Provided they willingly bow their knee before him. Provided they repent from their rebellion against his reign and rule. Provided they come to him and say, only you can save me. It is only through what you did to conquer sin that I can enter your kingdom. But when that happens, he welcomes us to enter his kingdom. All of that is possible only because of what Christ has done. Now that we've dealt with this, a little bit of this discussion on the kingdom, there's, there's another question we need to go back and consider from our text. Before the disciples can consider where and who they will witness to, they must see how they will be Christ's witnesses. They can understand, or we can understand, the theology of the kingdom, of where and who, all of those things. But we can understand all of that if we are not given the means to be witnesses. It's futile. Christ begins first with the how they will be witnesses. What does he say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Notice the order and what that happens. They receive power, then are witnesses. This is why Christ told them to wait. They cannot be witnesses without first receiving power from the Spirit. I think we, we struggle to comprehend the immensity of this statement. One of the reasons I think we struggle is because we don't consider the privilege we have in living at this time in redemptive history. This wasn't always the way. Throughout the entire Old Testament, they were looking forward to this promise. We're going to see Peter quote the Old Testament in chapter 2 where he says you, it was promised that he would pour his spirit out on you. We live in that time. We can sometimes just fall into this assumption of like, yeah, it's always been this way. We've always been given the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you put your faith in Jesus, no big deal. It's a big deal. He's given us this blessing. But, but more than just seeing the redemptive history of living at this time, there's a further back redemptive history we have to understand. How does God himself dwell within us? This is the problem all the way back in Genesis. Going all the way back, what happened because of our sin? There was a tearing of relationship. We were separated because God is holy and there can be no sin that is in his presence. He is set apart from it. We were separated from him. We could no longer accomplish our purpose. But then miracle of miracles, Christ decides to dwell among men. And he comes in bodily form. 
He takes on humanity, fully God, fully man, and he does what we could never do in that he lives a perfect and sinless life, and then he is a sacrifice for our sins. So that through his sacrifice, which was accepted, he rose again through that sacrifice. When we believe in him, the gift that is given to us is a better gift than the garden. In the garden, God walked with his people. Now, God dwells within his people. It's better. If we don't understand this in light of the redemptive history, the story that God is telling, we're going to miss the significance of the promise Jesus is saying. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit. I want to focus now on that word power from the Holy Spirit. Again, I think we misunderstand this. Back when we were in John, I explained when we were going through the Gospel of John, I explained a paradigm shift for me, which was the way I see the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we talk about him as a helper. And for me, in this stage of my life, being a dad, a helper often means one of my children coming alongside of me and offering to help. And I love that. I love that they want to help. And Jack and Elena, I don't want to hurt your feelings. But their help isn't always that helpful. It's getting more helpful oh, every day. There's elements where they want to come and do something with me, and it's like, okay, you're my helper. I'm doing the work, but you can be, come alongside me. How often do we think of the Holy Spirit that way? This is my mission, but God has given me a helper. All right, thanks, Holy Spirit. It's blasphemy. That's not the image. Let's reverse the roles. The image we should have is when my daughter, one-year-old daughter, comes to me and asks me to help her do something. It's not, she's not asking me to partner with her. She's not saying, God, she's not saying, Dad, uh, can you help me? Let's do this together. No, she's saying, Dad, I can't do this. I need your help. Will you be my helper? Meaning, can you accomplish what it is impossible for me to accomplish? That's the picture we need of the Holy Spirit. He's the helper, not that comes alongside all things. He's the helper we're like, I can't. I need you. And he's the helper that gives us power. Again, I want to just switch the way we think about this. Do you know the way I think of, usually think of power from the Holy Spirit? Spiritual caffeine. You know, I'm, I'm kind of already doing my thing. I'd probably get out of bed eventually. But, hey, you know, if you want to give me a little bit of a boost, a little a shot of caffeine to get this done, that's great. Is that the image we should have of power of the Holy Spirit? That we're, we're there. We might be spiritual sluggards, but, you know, every once in a while the Spirit gives us that boost of caffeine and we'll get up and get, get to work. No, that's not the image at all. The image is, I am a paraplegic lying in bed, unable to do any spiritual good until the power of the Holy Spirit runs through the veins and causes me to get up and walk. That's the power of the Holy Spirit we are going to see throughout the book of Acts. It's not just a little boost. It's not just a little bit of caffeine. It's not the, you were going to do the right thing, but... I'm just going to help you out a little bit to do the next thing. No, you would never do the right thing unless I live in you. 
This is the power we have. And it is a power so that we will be his witnesses. But I want you to notice, Christ doesn't ask them to be his witnesses. He doesn't call them. He doesn't even command them to be his witnesses. What does he say? He states a fact. You will be my witnesses. What's the significance of this? I think often we consider the role of being a witness more like a job to accomplish instead of a role to fulfill. Now, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to develop that, but there's a big difference between a job that you need to accomplish and a role you are meant to fulfill. We've been talking about a king. Often kings can commission someone to be their representative. What do we call it? An ambassador. An ambassador goes, is that a hat that that individual sometimes puts on and then takes off? Is it something where, well, while you're doing ambassador type work over in that other country, then you're an ambassador. But then when you're not doing that work, you're no longer an ambassador. No. You are my ambassador. I have commissioned you. Will that role have jobs that need to be accomplished? Absolutely. But even when those jobs are not accomplished, even when the ambassador messes up and does the wrong thing, not according to what the king would desire, even when they're not currently working on a project, do they remain an ambassador? Jesus is pointing out an identity that the apostles are. It's not a job. It's an identity. If you have placed your faith in Christ, do you, are you sometimes a new creation? You're a new creation when you're doing the right thing. You're an old creation when you're not. No, you are a new creation. This is your new identity. In Christ, we are witnesses. Every day of your life, after you place your faith in Jesus, you are his witness. How effective you are in being a witness, that depends. But don't think that this is something where we can just say, well, I think I'll be a witness today, but not tomorrow. No, you are a witness. And you are revealing the identity of the king. How well we are doing that is something that we need to discuss and consider. But this is a position, a role that is meant to be fulfilled, not a job that is meant to just be accomplished. We come to the end of our passage and we see that the apostles were expected to work till he returns. Look at verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In this last section, there are two mo momentous events, monumental occasions that provide us comfort. We are comforted because of the reality of Christ's ascension and the guarantee of his return. How is Christ's ascension a comfort? Wouldn't it be more comforting if he had stayed? No. First of all, because we now have confidence in the work he did because of where he is now. We sang earlier, before the throne of God above. What did Christ do? Christ took on our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. There could be a concern of, well, maybe he did it and, and it was for naught. 
it wouldn't accomplish anything. Maybe, Jesus, maybe God's going to look and say, it wasn't enough. But the fact that Christ, even now, after going through the cross and taking our sins, is in the presence of God is a comfort to us to know that what he did was enough, to know that his words, it is finished, are true. The ascension is also a comfort because it demonstrates how Christ is reigning as a king even now. Stephen, as he is stoned in chapter 7, is going to look up and see Christ at the right hand of, the, of God, and he is comforted. The ascension is also a comfort because of what it provides for us. Christ told, them, told his disciples in John 16 that it was to their advantage that he leave or the Spirit would not come. The advantage of the Spirit being present in our lives, indwelling in us, we're going to see how that is an advantage every page of the book of Acts. That it truly was better. Take heart in the ascension. It was finished. But our, our passage continues and we find the apostles watching and now it is a call to action. See, an interesting exchange happens here with them and two angels. The, the angels ask, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Why are they saying this? I, I think there's two reasons here. One is that call to action. Now you might say, well, but Stephen, you said that they were supposed to wait. Well, yeah. But where did Jesus tell them to wait? In Jerusalem. They're not in Jerusalem right now. They're close, but we'll see in, chapter, in verse 12 uh, next week, they're not in Jerusalem right now. They're a, a little bit out of it. Jesus told them, you're meant to be doing this. So the angels say, guys, what are you waiting for? Jesus gave you a job. Go do that job. The job is to wait in the city until you receive the promise. Go do that. But the second reason we see this interaction is again for our comfort. Christ is coming back. Here is the promise we are waiting for. Here is what we are looking forward to. He's coming back. But until that happens, as they take comfort in the guarantee that it will happen, they are meant to take action. They are meant to work till he returns. Now we get to this part and we think, okay, that's great. That's good for the apostles. But there's a lot of unique elements. I mean, they're waiting for the Spirit. That's not something that we have to do. How does this connect to us? We began this morning considering the difference it makes when you have the right tool for the job. Now I think the natural way for us to think of that story, that illustration, is who's the one that's looking for the tool? We are. We're the one that has a job to do. And what's the tool that we need? We need the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit so we can accomplish the job of witnessing. That's not how I want you to think about it this morning. Where did we start the book, the book of Acts? Who's the one doing the work? Jesus. God. The master craftsman, the one who's doing the work, that's not us. The one who wants to use the right tool, the one who has chosen the tool, is not us, it's God. And he chose us. He chose that we be the tool for him to accomplish the mission he ordained. That's astounding. 
But we need to recognize that this is God's greater work. That's where Luke begins this this book. It's not us. Recognize what he's doing. Recognize you're not the one that's saying, God, I have all of this work to do. Just give me the right tools. Let Let me do it. No, we need to humble ourselves and say, I can't. You can. You're the one doing the work. Let me be the tool that you take joy in using. Recognize God's greater work. But now, here's the question. Even if we want to be an effective tool, is that in our strength? Can we do everything in our power? I'm, I'm going to be sharp, no rust. I'm going to be ready, all of those. No, that, we can't make ourselves a useful tool. Which is, again, why Christ said, wait. Because there's a power that makes you an effective tool. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Our hope to be the tool that God uses to accomplish his mission is not our strength, it's his. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the counselor and comforter that will guide us, that will cause us to be transformed so that daily we become more and more like Christ. So we become more and more like the perfect instrument in the Redeemer's hand. This is the mission. The mission is not to become a witness. The mission is to become the witness he has already commissioned us to be. We do that as we rest in God's promise. Rest in what God has provided, the power of the Spirit. Rest in God's promise of what's coming. He's coming back. And then what are we meant to do? What kind of tools are we meant to be? We're meant to represent him through his power represent the king. We've been commissioned as ambassadors. Reveal the king. And how long are we meant to do this? We are meant to continue working, continue reaping till he returns. So what what Jesus says, the laborers are few. Ephesians 2.10, you are his workmanship that he created for good works. I didn't start this message with the big idea uh, like I normally do, but, but this is the big idea for us. As we wait for Christ's return, we will be his witnesses through his power. Not a call, not a command. It is how this must happen. He has commissioned us to be his witnesses through his power.